0: Welcome to Can I Kick It? This is a podcast about film festivals. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about the shorts from the current section of the festival. Uh, I'm joined by my guest, uh, by my co-host,
1: Emilio Diaz,
0: as well as by our guest, uh, writer Michael Sosinski. Hello. Hello.
1: Hello. Thanks for having me. Hello thanks for being on Mm -hmm.
0: so before we started recording we were talking about the kind of uh shift in programming this year under the new leadership of eugene hernandez and dennis lamb which i think currents is you know obviously the main slate is always going to be the main slate currents is the main like new section that is somewhat uh outspread somewhat a continuation of uh views from the avant-garde and projections uh but the shorts i think are a little more varied because all of the shorts are now under the current label and you were talking about that a little bit michael
2: right i think at different times um they've had um like the things that fall under Program 8, the New York shorts, at different times that's been mm-hmm. kind of a standalone program, um, whereas uh, views or rejections was kind of understood that most of the shorts in those programs were kind of a, of an experimental or avant-garde uh, character. Mm-hmm. Uh, the New York shorts, it uh, was kind of understood that as long as the filmmakers were from New York, uh, that could encompass experimental, but it could also be short narrative works or short documentaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, now they're all kind of brought under the same... Umbrella And one of the things that um, is sort of interesting about um, kind of launching Currents this year, and Mm -hmm. I've addressed this in some of the things I've written, is that I'm fairly certain, I I haven't talked to uh, Dennis or Eilid or any of the others uh, about this, but I'm fairly certain that they had planned to launch this new section, uh, and then, you know, 2020 became 2020, And so Mm -hmm. a lot of things kind of happened. They weren't necessarily counting on having a a virtual festival. They weren't necessarily counting Mm -hmm. on the fact that a lot of filmmakers uh, were going to hold their films back to 2021 or that Mm -hmm. certain filmmakers who ordinarily produce a film a year, uh, short Mm. short film-wise, did not. So um, I think that it's important to kind of understand that uh, putting forward this new program – they probably had a lot of um, unexpected uh, obstacles in terms of this is probably not exactly how they expected it to uh, to to go and so I think mm-hmm. that um, just the fact that they were able to pull it together is kind of uh, kind of impressive in itself but yeah. Um, but yeah I'm not sure that this format is how it will uh, is the final shape it'll take I'm sure that this is kind of a trial
0: run for a lot of those right I remember uh I was watching Dennis Lim's interview with Jordan Cronk, and it did seem like he was suggesting that both the main slate and currents will be slightly larger when they go back to having a physical festival
2: right and that that makes sense I mean in a way with, with currents I don't know that bigger would necessarily be better. I mean, as someone mm-hmm. in mean, my uh, charge for um, covering the festival for Mubi was to... Um, I mean, I watched some main slate items as well, but I had to watch all of uh, Currents, both the features and, mm-hmm. and the shorts. And compared to other years, I, I felt it was a little bit swollen. Um, mm-hmm. But I kind of felt, on the other hand, that that was possibly because other uh, showcases for these kinds of films, like uh, Wavelengths in Toronto, a few other festivals, right. did, did not happen. So I kind of felt like there was a possibility that uh, New York was uh, kind of batting cleanup in a way just to have some of these films shown that might not show otherwise during the calendar year. So maybe they are conceiving of a larger uh, currents in the future, but that, that would really surprise me because as it is, I kind, okay. of, I kind of felt like, um, this was really kind of at the breaking point of what uh, a, a viewer could reasonably take in.
0: But. Right, I would agree with that. Having also attempted to see all of Currents, I've seen about 80% of the short films. I'm still working through the features. I will have seen, hopefully, most of them by the time we talk about them on uh, in several days. Uh, but yeah, so... Maybe we can start with that New York Stories uh, program that was labeled as the eighth program, but also premiered first for whatever reason. Uh, it, it was interesting. I, y- you were saying that that program in the past has not been under the like projections or views from the avant-garde label. That makes a lot of sense. It felt like maybe was it six or seven shorts and the first two felt like they very much fit in with the rest of currents and the rest of them less. So, right.
2: I mean, sometimes it has been, and sometimes it hasn't been. And one of the things okay. I mentioned before uh, we, we went on was that at other times, these are the kinds of shorts that have been selected to play in front of uh, main slate selections, which right, I think right. some of the ones that are short documentaries and short narrative features, I think that's actually a great place for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but um you know a lot of times they're just logistics as far as where these things uh can go, and so yeah, I think program eight is one that um was really kind of a mixed bag as far as uh mm-hmm. you know it didn't really have a lot of cohesion um mm-hmm. because yeah, like you mentioned uh, there was the um at the, the um uh, let me my notes here the um uh, the Ricky. Uh, the Ricky D'Ambrose feature, mm-hmm. Object Lessons, which real, uh, he he's played in the other um, uh, experimental format before. I feel like what he's doing is very mm-hmm. much of a piece with those kinds of uh, films, whereas something like um, uh, Wild Bill Horsecock is, right. is very much not. And I, I, it might be worth noting... Um, but they they actually pulled that film from the festival, as you may have noticed. Yeah, um, so,
0: that no. So
2: that was that was kind of odd, but understandable. Right? Right. But right, but then the J. Uh, Jump The Isolated, which was kind of a a, a nice mm-hmm. time capital of New York and yeah. the under COVID nineteen. I mean, these are these are all very different stylistically, and so mm-hmm. you know, I think watching them as a as as a group you kind of understand why they're together, but it it doesn't make for a very cohesive viewing experience. So, you know, I, I I don't know that that's the best way to present them, but I I understand the logic, I suppose.
0: Right. Yeah. I guess as far as talking about those specifically, I think the one of those that I responded to the most was actually the first one, uh, the Sarah Friedland film, Drails, which kind of, goes over, is kind of based around, you know, the, the specific drills, the, the most obvious things that are drills, uh, are the, uh, the active shooter drills that, uh, students are doing, but then there's also, uh, uh, elements of other kind of routines that are, uh, put in conversation, you know, there's a lot of stuff about, scouting, there's scenes of a, uh, kind of, like, workplace meditation exercise, uh, and yeah, I thought that was interesting to put, both to put those in conversation, but also as someone who wasn't in high school all that long ago, uh, seeing those, I mean, I guess I, I definitely thought of those uh, drills maybe a little differently in school. I think I maybe happened to be going through elementary, middle, high school at a time where, like, I think I was born right after Columbine, and then, like, Sandy Hook didn't happen until I was very late in high school, maybe, and so it... I think they were just called Code Red drills. And one of them actually... There was an actual Code Red that happened at my school... At my high school. Uh, I think there was an armed robbery at a convenience store across the street that... uh, It was a weird one because it actually was starting as people were coming into school. Uh, So they had to, like, shepherd everyone into their classrooms as quick as possible. But, uh, yeah, uh, I think it is that is an interesting thing to see reflected and to think about differently in light of the last few years since I've graduated high school.
2: Yeah, no, I think, I think, I think so. And, and just that, um, bringing in the kind of Boy Scouts idea, this, this mm-hmm. motto of be prepared, well, that there's only so much one can do to be prepared, but also kind of what does it mean to, uh, to prepare for these things that, uh, right. somehow seem um, increasingly inevitable. Uh, and then you kind of extrapolate from that. What does it mean that as a society, you kind of just accept that the, the, mm-hmm. these sort of violent outbursts and um, shootings are, are going to be inevitable? We kind of, uh, you in, in the past, you would think, well, you would have duck and cover drills for the atomic bomb or you would have right, right. Uh, tornado drills well you know it's it's a very different thing to drill uh have a safety drill for the weather than for a mass shooting because one of those things is ostensibly preventable and the other isn't but there seems to be this mm-hmm. kind of just kind of blithe acceptance that well we can't we can't prevent this we can't stop this right so. right
0: And I guess it's worth noting that uh, Friedland, I think, also has a lot of experience in directing dance films, and there's elements of that in the film as well. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think she even lists this one on her website as like a kind of hybrid dance slash documentary film. Mm -hmm. and then yeah uh uh, what maybe in this program stood out to you
2: i think the the one that i i i i've been pretty familiar for a while with um uh, ricky dambrose's work and so i uh i I, that one was one that Mm -hmm. kind of stood out for me i um and I, I've, I've indicated Ricky, I, I don't think this is necessarily one of his strongest works, but I, I really like what he does. He kind of creates these kind of modular narratives out of these um, kind of flat, unmoving components that have to do with uh, historical information or kind of hypothetical uh, situations. And so with this one... Um, he's kind of taking this idea of the art world and its connection to uh, politics and creating this kind of hypothetical mm-hmm. situation where the two would kind of collide or clash and I I just really like the style he adopts where actors mm-hmm. are not really acting in the conventional sense but they're really there to kind of be mouthpieces or locations for a particular kind of uh dialogue or or idea set and um so he's really kind of trying to get information across mm-hmm. rather than create a kind of self enclosed dramatic world um and that that's that's kind of mirrored with the sort of matte flat colors that he uses and things like that so mm-hmm. um right. generally, I just really like what Ricky does, and that's that's the one that kind mm-hmm. of stood out and, and and like i said the uh j jump was the isolated was was
0: right, quite yeah.
2: quite nice, and just in the sense that um, focusing on this really kind of um, irritating whining man yes. as as sort of the focal point for this um, uh, time capsule of a particular moment in, in the pandemic, I think was really a kind of um, uh, it, it was just a really nice uh, nice decision because it kind of anchors. Mm-hmm. Uh, anchors us in time with that this is a very unpleasant time and there's no sense in kind of romanticizing, but also just that you know, it, it, this, this man ends up kind of embodying the frustration that we're all feeling about people who won't wear their masks or people you're quarantined with, who are, you're uncooperative in various ways, or, you know, people who, you know, Mm -hmm. take this and make it into a conspiracy, or, or just all the different ways that this, this pandemic, can bring out a lot of people's worst tendencies. I mean, this, this, this gentleman kind of, um, right. you know, and that the, the guy is, is, is a friend of the filmmaker. So it's, it's done in this kind of loving way, right, right, yeah. but, um, just listening to this guy Kvetch mm-hmm, G- yes. was, uh, was a really nice way to kind of present that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is that, that he is a friend of the filmmaker. I think is interesting that it allows that character to be both, uh, sympathetic and irritating at the same time.
2: Yeah, I mean it was it was done and it, it it was it was um it was good spirited e- even though it doesn't really soft pedal the fact that this guy is uh kind hard of the around.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And you yeah, know, yeah, like another there. uh, uh... Uh, short in that program that I quite liked, uh, Taylor Montague's In Sudden Darkness, which is maybe the most conventional narrative short in the, both in this section and in the, in the festival overall, uh, but I think it's quite effective about the, uh, the blackout in 2003, uh, in New York, um, yeah, focusing on a family, and I, I just think that those are uh, three three really uh, you know well well sketched out characters. I think that for a short to get those uh, to to be able to get as invested in those characters as you are and just feel like they are all very likable. People, I think uh, yeah especially the child I think that's a, a very impressive child performance
2: yeah I agree I really liked um, uh, Taylor's film and uh, you know ordinarily um, I, for some of the reasons you I, I don't necessarily uh, like narrative shorts as a genre because I often feel like there's not enough time mm-hmm. for character development or to. but I, but I feel like she really she really accomplished that that really created a sense of atmosphere and uh, you really get a sense of the, uh, mm-hmm. not only those characters, but that community. And um, yeah, I, I, I think that was a, a really nice film that I, 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 just, I just see lots of talent there. I see a, a great feature for Kayla Montague, um, you know, the, just in the sense that, you know, I, I would have liked to have spent more time with those characters. Mm-hmm. So if, if she chooses to yeah, expand absolutely. that into a feature, I would definitely want to see that. So.
1: Yeah,
0: so, oh, hmm, I, I may have been, uh, I've been having some internet issues over the last few days, probably, related to that. Yep. Okay, great.
1: Yeah. So, do you want to transition into program one?
0: Yep, I think so. Uh, yeah, so. I'll say programs one and two, even though I saw them after, uh, the eighth one I'm looking at and I, I should, uh, actually look at the summaries cause I'm barely remembering a lot of these, uh, right, right, right. Okay.
2: And I see this is, this is, this is a good example of kind of what I'm talking about and that, um, I feel like in a different year where maybe the the programmers might have been a bit more selective and not trying to get as many films in as possible. I feel like if you look at program one and program two, you can maybe put those together and remove some films and you have one really strong program between the two. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think that there are some really strong films in in both programs, but there are some other ones that I'm not as, uh, that I wasn't as taken with. Um, but I'd be interested to to hear hear your thoughts
0: yeah I mean like in program one I think the two that stood out the most to me were uh, This Day Won't Last which was the diary film uh, by a uh, queer Tunisian man uh, dealing with uh, uh, I can't remember what the particular uh law is called but dealing with a, a law outlawing uh homosexuality in Tunisia and then the other one is just hidden I actually I I kept meaning to see three faces and then never got around to it uh but even though this is kind of a little bit of a sequel or uh it's a, the notes refer to it as a mini remake of that I think it's just always always like fun to spend some time with Jafar Panahi. I've seen most of his other, uh, post, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Why can't I find it? Uh, that, the recent films anyway.
1: Post, post blacklisting
0: film. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I, I like both those
2: very much. I mean, I think that, uh, Massad, El Salim. Uh, this day won't last. Um, I was just really impressed with how, as a diary film, he kept introducing new ways to generate sound and image. I mean, it's a film that, mm-hmm. in a short amount of time, has a lot of different kinds of, um, a lot of different kinds of information, a lot of different kinds of style, but it all really hangs together, and um, it's really, uh, it's really powerful. I mean, I. And and like I said, one of the things I mentioned when I wrote about it, that, um, you know, in in the English speaking world, you've got this kind of slogan like it gets better. But there's there's a way in which when you think about it against this film, it gets better is is almost kind of thinking about how it gets better for the individual, whereas like this day won't last. It's really this this kind of argument for for everybody, for every queer who's facing the pressure and that right now we're in this particular particular moment. But but this moment won't last because it it, it simply can't. And it was really just uh, I just thought it was a really lovely protest film that really kind of you know spoke from the heart, but but also had this really kind of um, exceptional formal quality to it as well. And I and I agree with you with with, uh, with the Panahi that um, I mean he's an interesting filmmaker to kind of think about in terms of the quarantine because like you know he's 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 been under house arrest. But he continues to find ways to uh, subvert that and uh, and make films, even though he's legally prohibited from doing it. Sometimes it's as simple as, well, he didn't touch the camera, therefore he's not legally uh, directing and things like that. But he's uh, he's always uh, finding unique and poetic ways to to show how um, uh, Iranian society can be oppressive in 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 different kinds of ways, not just in the ways we might think. So I think those are, mm-hmm. those are definitely two very impressive films in that collection. And I, I also liked uh, Pilar Monsell's Revolt Without Images, which was um, kind of this uh, reclamation project talking about this, uh, this women-led revolt uh, mm-hmm. against um, city fathers who decided to withhold all the wheat and starve the peasants to death. And how there, there's, no, there's no image, but there's also very little uh, record of this event and so she goes to the the remains of the granary where this happened and films people in this space and then kind of looks looks at different women in the present day looking at images from that time and kind of triangulates that. It's like, well, here are people in this space where this happened. Here are people looking at images from when that happened and kind of, they don't really match up, but that's as close as a ma- of a match as you're going to get to creating some sort of, record of this very significant historical event that um, has really just kind of been written out of official history. So I I really liked Monselton as well. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, and then in in Program 2, I think what I liked most was uh, Force by uh, Simon Liu and Jenny Mary Tai Liu, which is at, in Hong Kong and it is a very kind of aggressive film about uh, uh, policing in some ways uh, you know force uh, that uh, uses a lot of very a lot of voiceover there's this uh, digital animation kind of that looks really interesting it's it's uh, that I found a very compelling film.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 agree. And I, I've been following Simon's work for a while and, and mm. he's really kind of uh, trying new things in this one. I, it, he's been making these kind of uh, layered collage films uh, mm. for a while. out of these kind of travel log images from, uh, from Hong Kong. But this, this use of the, the animation is something he's never really tried before. And I, I think it works really well because he, like you say, it really is kind of taking these images and then, layering it within this kind of dystopian framework of, mm-hmm. you know, these voices and these, these play that you're, you seem to be moving around this space, but you're clearly not moving freely through it, that, um, you're being told by this disembodied police state voice, what to do, where to go, where you can't go. And so, yeah, I think it's a uh, very, um, very, uh, forceful. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very, uh, mm-hmm um a strong way to communicate what um uh, what's really happening in Hong Kong right now.
1: Mhm. And uh, are there any that you would like to call out uh Michael?
2: Yeah, uh one other one that I really liked for that program was uh, uh Shokun trust, trust study number 1, which was um uh right. the uh interview um that uh, pertain to um, the uh, unofficial uh, Arab banking system and how this was a way to uh, avoid uh, people having their money confiscated uh, after 9-11, because it was this kind of blanket assumption that um, anybody in the Arab states who was transferring money uh, was presumably laundering money for Al-Qaeda or, or ISIS. And so... It was really interesting this kind of back and forth between the artist and the um, and the banker about how to describe the system, how much to say about it, how much to not reveal about it, and then the fact you're seeing mm-hmm. these seemingly meaningless images over this um, over this interview, and then over the course of the film, you learn what these images actually are that they're part of this mm-hmm. uh, secret code um, that's that is used amongst the right. uh, the bankers and the, the this kind of underground banking system to identify where the money goes, who it's going to. So, um, it, you know, on a very basic level, I learned something. I learned quite a lot mm-hmm. from Trust Study Number One, but I also really appreciated formally how um, Bailey, uh imparted this information with this kind of give and take and with this kind of gradual release right. mm-hmm. of of uh, of information. I, I, I was really impressed with that one.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say maybe uh, uh, silence with text on the screen is a bit of uh, a theme through this year's program, both in terms of a few of the shorts, and uh, there's a ton of it in Her Socialist Smile, which we'll talk about when we do the features. Uh, yeah, and, and I was surprised by, in most of the cases, how well that worked.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I know that sometimes, uh, purely silent film can be a challenge for audiences under the best of circumstances, but I think Mm -hmm. streaming it at home rather than being in a theater can be particularly difficult. Um, so I think they probably didn't, um, program as many silent films as they might've in a different year, but, um, Mm -hmm. but they did program some. And I think that, uh, they they chose wisely because I think that, mm-hmm. you know, for the most part, it's quiet when we read. So I think that, uh, you know, the fact that these were kind of um, reading heavy uh, works really kind of mm-hmm. focused our attention there and we're really less likely to, uh-huh. you know, notice the, the kind of gaping silence Whereas, you know, if you were watching a, a Stan Brakhage film or something, you know, sometimes that's, that silence, which I, I love Brakhage immensely, but that silence mm-hmm. can be kind of thundering Um or, you know especially if you're watching them at at home so so I think they 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 chose wisely in that respect,
0: yeah, uh, if we want to move on to program three uh we'll hit the first film that uh Emilio has seen. do you wanna maybe start off talking a bit about uh correspondence
1: uh yeah, so uh, I mostly watched the films of uh, Program 7, and I watch a couple of different movies from other sections through other different forms of access. So, and correspondence is the first, like, in the, se- the sequence in which we have chosen to talk about these correspondence by uh, Carla Simon and Domingo Sotomayor. It's the first one that I have watched, and i f- It's like, as a person who's not barely very familiar with short filmmaking, I found it an in- incredibly interesting sort of just formally the way that it chooses to tell its story it's sort of this like dialogue between these two filmmakers trying to talk about the ways in which their like family history has influenced them and then how they feel about maybe having children in the future and like the sort of world that we're throwing them in and how these like cycles of like oppression and then finding hope within them keep repeating themselves even though they're from different cultures, because one of the filmmakers is from Spain, and a lot of her segment is spoken in Catalan, and the other, uh, Domingo Solomero is from Chile, correct? Yeah, and I really liked it. I really liked the its use of just, like, the shifting format of, because at first it sort of exists in this, like, boxy, like, maybe 16 millimeter, though I'm not sure what they shot it on, like, films, uh, just, like, going through the past and seeing these family, old family photos and trying to remember these, like, their memories of their parents and what they sort of think that they got from them as they grew up and became filmmakers, and then towards the end, there's newer, like, digital photography of, like, protests in Chile and in Spain to sort of show the uncertainty of how the world is going on, but I'm curious to see what you guys who are more familiar with the form thought about it.
0: I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say I'm that much more familiar with short avant-garde filmmaking than you are, Amelia. You know, I... I, When we've been to TIFF, I try to see a little bit of it at wavelengths, but uh, it's not... It's certainly not something I'm very familiar with. Uh, But yeah, I like this a lot I think it's interesting I don't know if it has any this film has any relationship I know there was a series that I think was the same name just correspondence uh that like I know there was one between uh Jose Luis Garin and Jonas Meckes several years ago is it like five of those maybe that are correspondences between two different filmmakers
2: Right. And I, I, I thought at first that this was another one of those uh, in the series, but apparently it's not. Apparently it was just okay. um, that was just a kind of coincidence that they were working on this project and had the same name. So, because, yeah, when I first saw this uh, over the summer, uh, I, mm-hmm. I thought that this must be I mean, it, it fits into that project so well that it must be mm-hmm. a continuation of that project. But apparently right. it, it, it's not. And Amelia, and I, I can't really you know, improve on your your articulation of this film or your your description of it because I think that I think you really kind of hit on what what makes it work that you know these two filmmakers are kind of in different situations historically, geographically, but they're but they're sort of grappling with some of the same issues. And you know when they're they're kind of thinking about um, the, the the matrilineal line of their mothers, their grandmothers, and what they faced. That you know, there are obviously differences, but you know, they both, uh, you know, they both come from families who had to like, grapple with fascism. You know that they had to you know, involved in be involved in protests or were unable to protest. Um, and so, yeah, when you kind of see uh, the the present day protests, it's sort of like, well, this is what they this is what they both inherited. In in a certain sense that like you know, time continues, but there's this kind of cyclical element of uh, they're carrying on uh, their um, their mothers and grandmothers' legacies, and and then you know what are they what would they hypothetically pass on to um, daughters or even even sons? So so yeah, it's uh, I think just a a really beautiful film, and it really kind of um, and it really articulates feminism in this really smart way because it kind of deals with these material realities and how they are both different between two cultures but have certain kinds of uh, well correspondences (laughs) right so that there's a that there's a similarity without kind of covering over the differences
1: yeah especially because within the film you know it's not like it has like it has some title cards and some use of like written language on screen, but it's not like they're very clearly making the divisions of like, this is this person's life and this is this person's life. So it allows those to blend together in a way that you're more curious about in which ways their upbringing were different and similar.
2: Yeah, exactly. That um, through through the montage, these two women's lives kind of, um, Kind of blend together in this way that is, is really, um, really smart and really poetic. So, yeah,
1: no, you're absolutely yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm sort of curious about the other shorts in this section because, again, I watched mostly section seven and I thought this Sotomayor short had something in common with, with all of those sort of shorts, which I thought was like an interesting, like, somatic connection of just like the sorts of ways we are trapped within our perception of the world and how, like, Certain things that have happened to us, or certain understanding that we have, sort of trap, sort of color our vision of the future and the present. So I'm sort of curious what what is the thematic connection between these like series program three shorts, or if there's any other ones that you would like to shout out within it.
2: Um, yeah, I mean this is this is a program I, I kind of had trouble with because some of the films I I, I thought were very, uh, well, I, I I thought that there was a, a wide um, variation of quality within within this one. And um in some of the films just I really had a hard time kind of getting a beat on what they were trying to do. I mean I think one of the the other stronger ones um uh, in this program was the last one, uh, Matilda Girard's uh, episodes Spring twenty eighteen, um which is really very and in certain ways has more in common with the uh, the new york stories because it's it's mm-hmm. parisian but it has more in common with those types of films than it does with anything else in the uh, in the shorts programs um mm-hmm. because it's it, it appears to be a kind of diary film but it's actually reacted and fictionalized and it's um uh, it, it's very much about um this group of women friends and acquaintances trying to navigate uh, contemporary uh, problems, political problems and social problems in France. And it, 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 it involves acting, it involves emoting. And I thought it was a very interesting object in that you know, it's, it's, used, it's making fiction through a kind of diary format, a kind of fake diary format. And so it was a sort of film that I wasn't entirely sure how I felt about it. I'd have to see more of Gerard's output to kind of put this in a context to see what exactly her project is. But I definitely mm-hmm. wanted to see more. I was definitely intrigued by this. But I wasn't certain that it, um, it played well within the whole of, of the program. It really just seemed like this kind mm-hmm. of UFO dropped in the middle of everything else. But nevertheless, I, I, it's, it's extremely impressive work. And uh it definitely made me interested in Jord as a filmmaker. So that that's one I would definitely highlight.
0: Okay. Yeah. And then I I missed out on most of programme three. Uh in programme four I think there's two uh films that have obvious connections formally and those are uh Labour of Love and Figure Minus Fact that sylvia shuttlebauer and mary helena clark and those also are two i'm under the impression too of the slightly higher profile filmmakers in the festival and that i i don't think i've seen anything by either of them but i've certainly heard of both of them
2: uh yeah they're, they're pretty um they're pretty well known pretty well respected and they're two mm-hmm. uh artists who I, I don't know to my mind are kind of working at the the height of their powers mm-hmm. I and mean, i think those are two of the best films in the, in the, in the program or in the entire festival. Um, Sylvia Schettelbauer, um, she's been making films for about 10 or 15 years. And she's really kind of perfected this sort of um, layered, swirling, pumping kind of editing Mm -hmm. format where images are kind of vibrating and kind of birthing one out of the other. And it's really like the screen is kind of, uh, pumping and pulsating and it's just, it's just absolutely, absolutely fascinating. Nobody else is really making films like her. Um, Mm -hmm. and she's really kind of perfected this, uh, this particular formal technique. And with this one, she's really taken that technique and added in this sort of psychedelic color aspect. This is only Uh, her second film in color. Um, Mm -hmm most of her work had been black and white previous to this. And so she's really kind of taking what she does well and adding a new element to it. And it really just came together. um, Fantastically. I mean, it's just this kind of psychedelic mandala um, Mm -hmm. that really just, I mean, you can kind of see images in it of butterflies and stuff, but but at a certain point, I think it just becomes this hypnotic object. It's just, it's just gorgeous.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I would absolutely agree with that. That, is interesting in... I mean, I think I found both of these films both among the more compelling and among the more puzzling of the festival. Uh, the Bower is interesting in that it almost kind of tells you through narration how to watch it at the very beginning or gives you a little bit of a hint at the very least, uh, and then that goes away... Uh, Mm -hmm. whereas the the Mary Helena Clark just kind of uh throws you in uh I'll say in terms of uh in terms of how I responded to that uh it had an advantage in that almost always I will respond to uh footage of animals in motion uh you know the the one kind of student film that I made before I uh, dropped out of film school was of just I went out on campus and was like the uh, film you know what are the squirrels here up to uh, so I I am pretty much always gonna be compelled by just looking at animals and this has a lot of footage of uh, touch tanks of uh, stingrays which is really cool to look at obviously you can also go to an aquarium but uh i I find the ways that animals can be filmed to always be really fascinating
2: yeah yeah and and i I think this really works on that level um i mean the one image from uh figure minus that that really sticks with me is this early um kind of uh vertical tracking shot of of the bell uh where it's like i i don't know what she had the camera on but it just it's just almost like the camera is an elevator just moving up this bell uh with this kind of perfect rectilinear movement and you see the the inner workings of the bell tower and light is kind of bouncing off of it in this perfect way um mary helena clark um just as a side note um a a few films back i saw I, i was um at a festival in ann arbor and um I was invited to be on a panel where we talked about one of her films and mm-hmm. a couple of other films. And the the, the t- name of the title was what the hell was that? Because it was, <laughs> uh, her films is one, uh, uh, her film was one of a number of films that other people at the festival claimed that they didn't understand and they wanted to see it again and try and figure it out. And I feel like that kind mm-hmm. of goes for a lot of her films that um, she's always putting images together that don't seem like they should go together, but the more time you spend with these films, something kind of intuitive emerges uh, from mm-hmm. them. So you know, the, 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 the bells, the, the animals, the, the landscapes, it, it seems like it has something to do with uh, the movement of time or the taming of nature and these things, but, but mm-hmm. you can't ever really narrativize right. it. You can't really explain it or put your finger on it. Uh, because it's she's really getting at something that's kind of non-linguistic and really intuitive, and that's mm-hmm. the, the fact that I I can't describe her films and say this is about this is really what right. makes me like them because she's doing mm-hmm. something that you can really only do with film, right? I mean she could mm-hmm. she could write a poem if you could do it with, with words. So yeah, I mean I I never feel like I fully understand her work, but but I'm always drawn to it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, I I would agree with that. I'd be certainly curious to see more of her work. And then, yeah, the other one that I saw in this program was, uh, uh, In the Air Tonight, which is from one of the few filmmakers who I happen to have a little bit of experience with, uh, Andrew Norman Wilson. I also saw his, uh, uh, what is it? It's Lavender Town Syndrome is what it's called, uh uh which i think was part of a a larger project but that's the one of that project i've seen just because he's he's got that one online like i think there was another film and then a slideshow involved in that
2: uh, yeah that sounds familiar uh he's also got this really nice piece of um where he's got different colors of smoke emerging from uh atms um it's uh He's 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 an interesting uh, sculptor and video artist. Um, mm-hmm. I, I find his work kind of hit or miss, but I I mm-hmm. I generally like where he's he's coming from. But I'd be interested to hear what you had to say about uh, what eater you had to say about In the Air Tonight.
0: Yeah, I mean, I find In the Air Tonight to be uh, just like a cool piece of like pop culture myth-making, uh, it, it's around, it's, uh, about, uh, Phil Collins and some, uh, kind of urban legend stuff surrounding, uh, in there, tonight. I don't know how much of it was urban legends that he had heard, and how much that, uh, maybe, uh, he just made up, uh, from what I gathered, uh, Genesis is not like, or Phil Collins are not like uh, artists that I love or that familiar with. From what I gathered, it seems like some of this might be like the film could maybe be read uh, as an allegory for uh, Peter Gabriel leaving the band is the impression that I got in that the, uh, the narrator of the film is a character that Gabriel played on the last tour that they did together, uh, but yeah, it's just, like, I found it to be pretty funny, it's got this kind of silly punchline with the, the drum solo of, uh, the, the famous drum solo, and kind of, uh, the film kind of blows up briefly at that moment, uh, but yeah, it's not. It. I don't think I responded it to it as much as uh, Lavender Town Syndrome, which that similarly is kind of a piece of pop culture myth making that. Uh, that I I wasn't one hundred percent aware of the the myth that that's ar- the urban legend that that's around, but that is around a more specific urban legend, and also has this very funny exchange about. Uh, the metaphysics of pokeballs which uh is fun but yeah, yeah. I, I i like but i like this film you saw it too Emil.
1: yeah it's another one of the ones i got to see it's very interesting in that as jesse mentioned it sort of works as a lark as just like a, a long form like sort of comedy skit it it works on that level but i also find its use of like imagery and sort of the color blue and sort of evoking those like mid to late 80s like blue neon hues to be like sort of compelling and interesting. At the end of the day, I don't know if I really loved it that much. I don't know if it's quite as funny as it thinks it is and I don't know if it's like as compelling a story as I think it is. Similar to Jesse, I'm not the biggest like Genesis fan in the world. I do like I do think that In the Air Tonight has incredibly, like, cinematic qualities. The song I'm talking about, not the short. So, and I think the piece uses it well. But, and I have, I am, like, slightly more familiar, I think, than Jesse with, like, the stories about, like, how In the Air Tonight is sort of based around full call and seeing this guy drowning or whatever. But... I don't know. It's like at the end of the day, I found it sort of fun, but it didn't provoke as many, as much like deep thought as some of these other shorts m- might have produced from me.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm kind of inclined to agree. I mean, I do think that it does a good job, like you say, of capturing that sort of uh, icy uh, mid '80s kind of aesthetic. Uh, parts of it look mm-hmm. like, if they weren't excerpts from Miami Vice, then they could have been uh taken from some sort of adjacent sort of pop culture you know mid-80s mm-hmm. michael mann right. films or something like that but but yeah so i mean i think he he's skillful and he kind of a, a um, accomplishes what he sets out to do but yeah i mean i think that it it kind of hits its comedy beats and it doesn't really leave you with with all that much uh, you know a- afterward but you know it's it's fine
0: Right, and then, like, the other thing in comparison to Lavender Town Syndrome is that it's very much missing the uh, structuralism of that film, which I think makes that film a lot more compelling visually than this one. Uh, But yeah, it is, interestingly, I don't want to totally blow up... uh, wilson's spot but uh if you go to uh his website uh this may be one of the films that is already publicly available hidden away a little bit on his website
1: yep i will say uh i this is i also watched another short from this section i forgot to tell jesse but i i don't really think i have much to say because i found it sort of like puzzling apart from just like enjoying the sort of visual aesthetic of it but i did watch uh ben rivers's look then below which is sort of this like experiment in like putting a cgi landscape over this real life world and then having this narration like describing sort of a i I, this was the one that i found the most puzzling i don't really know i can say much about it about apart from i found the cgi sort of compelling to look at but not, I didn't get much else from it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I in a way, I kind of agree. I mean, I, uh, I, I know Ben. I've been writing about Ben's films for for quite a while, and he's he's been working on landscape films and portrait films for quite some time, and he's moving into this kind of new area uh, where that that kind of CGI and um, color experimentation is very new, and I think he's. I think he's trying new things out, and I don't think in this film he's really kind of fully, fully nailed it, fully kind of nailed it down as far as what Mm -hmm. what this kind of uh, this colorized abstraction can really offer his his work. I mean, a lot of people compared it to the uh, the the film Annihilation, which uh, is a very similar look. And I I don't know how intentional that was, but it. it, it, it ends up having this kind of um, science fiction element that I think is of interest to Ben because he's kind of become more interested in post humanist ideas uh, he's uh, made a lot of films that deal with geology and sedimentary layers mm-hmm. and this idea that human life is a is a mere blip on the you know kind of geological uh, time frame of of humanity and so I I think that he's kind of interested in these sort of post-human film uh, themes of stratification of the earth but but I don't know again I'm not entirely convinced that this abstraction uh, really takes in that direction I mean I I think it it looks it looks great but but like you I was a little bit uh, confused as to what that really brought to the table yes
1: I will say it's also the sort of film where if I had saw it in a theater, I might get more from it being sort of enveloped in its landscape than I would at home, which I am curious about. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I I was like at a time crunch towards the middle of the festival when like three and four were coming up, and so both the the Ben Rivers seeing that it was. uh, the third in a series, and, uh, the Borak Shevik, seeing that it was based around a Straublier film that I hadn't seen, I was like, these seem very likely to go above my head.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, uh, the, the, the chevik is, is actually quite nice, but it's, uh, but yeah, it's, um, Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't even necessarily have had to watch class relations to, to get it, mm-hmm. but uh, okay. I, I would say that um, if you have access to other Chavik works, uh, they're probably more worth pursuing than than this this one in particular. Okay. I mean, he's made a couple of features that are okay. um, a little bit more uh, compelling than this, I and mean, he's really kind of an interesting new uh, young Turkish uh, filmmaker. But but yeah, I mean, this one is not um, essential.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, right, he did uh, Belonging, which I remember hearing a lot about last year. Okay, yeah. And then uh, in Program 5, I think maybe the the standout is uh, an arrow pointing to a hole. I know this is another film by uh, a filmmaker who has been around for a long time, who I'm coming to for the first time. This is one of the, uh, more kind of obviously transgressive content-wise films in the festival. Uh, you know, it's, it's very funny. It's, uh, Steve Renke kind of, uh, narrating, uh, sometimes with footage on him, sometimes with, uh, different archival clips. It's another one that, I had a hard time getting a real handle on just because it seemed like it had so many different kind of ideas coming together and it was hard to quite put them together.
2: Yeah. I mean, I I think I could say the same thing, although I I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Steve ranky has been around for a while and for, for a time he was really just kind of uh, stuck in the, uh, in the video art. Uh, right. Circles, but he's really kind of uh, been uh, recognized in these film circles in the last few years, and which okay. is, I think is really great. I mean, I, I just find his work—he's uh, got this incredibly uh, fascinating personality. I mean, he kind of, yeah, as a performer, I think he's uh, really got this kind of great stand-up comedy, sort of this academic stand-up mm-hmm. comedian kind of kind of um, right. pers- um, personality to him, and yeah, he's he's throwing a lot of complicated ideas at you and not really following through because I think, you know, if we can go, if we can kind of compare this to uh, uh, in the air tonight, I mean, in the air tonight is Mm -hmm. kind of a lark, right. But it kind of is a, in in a way it's kind of a one liner. Whereas like with Reinke, Mm -hmm. I think this is kind of a lark too, but he's constantly Mm -hmm. throwing new stuff at you. And, you know, you can kind of take one of those ideas and roll it around a bit and think about it and maybe go somewhere with it. Or not because he's he's not really trying to get you to follow linear thought he's really just kind of just you know screwing around with ideas and theory and images and you know and and so it, it it's kind of i mean he's he's kind of serious about all of this, but he's not entirely serious I think he just wants to kind of you know play with all of these ideas in a kind of um, haphazard uh stream of consciousness way and yeah I don't think we're really supposed to follow these things or take notes or anything like that it's just I I just think he's hilarious I just think he's uh you know he's he's kind of the professor I wish I had
1: right
0: (laughs) yeah and then the other two uh this is one of the uh it's the one with the program with the least number of films in it uh i guess single copy is the other, is the one that i got more out of that's a a kind of disturbing film uh it, it's about uh this man who, uh, when he was very young, was, he had a conjoined twin, and I get the impression that they were, they were separated, the surgery was, uh, broadcast live on television, so it, it seems that they were quite, uh, famous, but there's also, like, this, uh, stuff about his family that features, like, uh, weird 3D digital scanning uh, Uncanny Valley stuff which is like weird to look at.
2: Yeah, I mean I think that um, that's another film that I I had trouble getting getting a a handle on but I I think there is a lot of interesting stuff in it. I I wasn't entirely convinced that all the different strands were as uh, well connected as as they mm-hmm. they could have been, I I, I liked. I, I thought that the, the 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 primary subject of the film was kind of compelling, uh, mm-hmm. but I kind of felt like it moved around a bit without really uh, connecting all of these different threads. But uh, but it was again, I think this is the uh, uh Xu Chie, Yu I believe this may be his first or second film, and so mm-hmm. it's, it's somebody I would definitely want to keep an eye on. Um, but yeah, that one didn't entirely come together for me. But I, I would say yeah. it's um, much better than the other film in the in that program. Once removed, which I, mm. I I really didn't care for at all.
0: I I will say I'm looking at the summary and I cannot remember if I watched it.
2: Well, I mean, it's the one about um, the uh, uh, Lebanese man who believed he was a reincarnation. Uh, oh a right Lebanese fighter right and you know the problem with that one it was adapted from a uh a gallery installation and mm, so I okay. really felt like it just not enough work had gone into making it into a single channel a comprehensible single channel video uh it was mm-hmm. just entirely too difficult to follow uh the, the I felt like the film was half over before I even really figured out what was being presented or argued and right. uh yeah, I, potentially interesting material, but just uh, really kind of lacking in form. So.
0: Right. right, yeah. I, I I do now remember it, and yes, I would agree with that. All right, and then uh, uh, Program 6, I know uh, Kevin Jerome Everson is kind of the, the big filmmaker in here, and I found that's a his film, *Sandfield* is one that I enjoyed while finding slightly frustrating. I think that the thing about it is that it starts on this footage of some kind of uh, diagnostic test at this uh, military base, uh, and you see the, the audio from that test uh continues and sometimes loops back and he'll cut back and forth between the the video footage of the test and other things going on at this military base and I guess the the thing about it that frustrated me a little bit while I was enjoying it is that you know there's parts of it that, of this test that are intentionally frustrating you don't know what is what is being tested there's like he, ke- uh, the, the, uh, administrator of the test, I guess, keeps asking the, the test subject for a number, which I would imagine maybe has to do with, a a discomfort level, it seems. He, he keeps saying zero throughout much of the film, but I guess the thing is that even with the not knowing what is going on with this test, I found that test to be more compelling than whatever else was being cut to and so as we were kind of hearing the bits of this test happening I was like oh I kind of wish we were just seeing the whole thing of that as opposed to everything you know like you see uh I remember what looks like maybe quality control going on for parachutes or just different different kind of more everyday seeming tasks
2: yeah um this is one of uh i think he's he's either completed two or three films now where he's using this footage that he shot um uh, mm-hmm. at an air force base um in Ohio and he's focusing on um uh, uh, african american uh, military personnel and yeah i I find them interesting but i'm not entirely i have to see more of them to really kind of get a sense of what mm-hmm. he's doing with it because i'm not really sure um what his uh what his assertion is as far as the specificity of the black experience within the military or if he's really trying to make an assertion or if, if it's really just mm. portraiture uh right. or um if kind of focusing on black personnel is really just kind of um, a formal decision or a political decision. I'm, I'm really not, um, mm-hmm. not entirely sure how to take these, because in a lot of his other films, a lot of his earlier films, there's really a clearer sense that by focusing on black subjects, he is engaging in um, kind of uh, uh, historical excavation or focusing on uh people who are socially marginalized, or focusing on um unsung heroes in the community or things like that. And with this one, mm-hmm. with Sandfield, uh I'm not entirely sure um what he's what he's up out- to. I mean I find it an intriguing mm-hmm. film, but like you say, there are, uh-huh. there are different aspects of it that um don't that that don't necessarily clarify their um their place within the film so i'm hoping one thing i've 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 written about uh everson's work in the past is that his films are so short that a lot of times his work isn't very well suited to group work group group um, film Mm -hmm. presentation but if you see a lot of his films uh in a short amount of time that they're almost like seeing a, a suite of paintings or prints or something like that. Mm-hmm. You, you get a bigger sense of what his project is when you see more Everson films at a time. And so this is one where i kind of reserve judgment because I think if I see more of this project uh, at a time, the films might inform each other. Um whereas so far I've only seen Sandfield. So um but yeah I, I kind of shared your confusion a little bit
0: Well to maybe is there uh I can hear my audio coming from someone's speaker now, uh, oh, I guess maybe Zoom has started filtering out again, I don't know, okay, uh, seems like we're good again, uh, what I was gonna say is that, uh, as far as seeing a lot of ever since work at once, uh, and as far as some of this work being, uh, accessible outside of the sort of festival circuit I know there's a big uh blu-ray collection of his work coming out I think in I think it's a British distributor so it's going to be region B maybe or might not be region locked not sure uh but uh people will be able to see a lot of his work at once if they want to uh later this year Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then as far as some of the other, uh, films in this, uh, program, I also liked, uh, Aki Iaya, uh, Melissa Liebenthal's film, which, uh, does some cool stuff with, uh, it starts on, uh, Google Earth, uh, looking at some of the places where that, uh, she's lived and, uh, through different, different images, uh, different ways of kind of using that Google Earth imagery, uh, uh, tracks some of her family's migration, at least on her dad's side to, uh, Buenos Aires, uh, where she was born and then deals a little bit with her, uh, being, back in Germany, I believe, where her father's from. It's interesting. It reminded me a little bit of a film that we talked about several months ago, maybe more in uh, content than in form. Uh, Heimat is a Space and Time, the Thomas Heise film, which is also a kind of... That film is entirely, instead of partially, a kind of chronicling of the uh filmmaker's family history uh that's the one that uh i think we talked about it maybe in march or april that uh uh is him reading uh diaries and different kind of archival stuff that he has from his family and this has there's a segment of this that is very similar and of course also deals with in this case the family uh, who is uh, part Jewish leaving Germany uh, in the mid-30s as opposed to staying there.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this the, the, uh, this one was interesting, and one of the things I thought was interesting about it was that it kind of starts out, like you say, dealing with you know, Google Earth, and it, it, kind of watching the cursor move around, I mean, really kind of starts out like this desktop film. Like, you don't really know, am I going to be watching... Her manipulating a desktop through the whole thing, and then it kind of pulls back. It introduces found footage and things like that, but then it also kind of pulls back at, an, at another register. So you see um, the um, you see the the track for a tracking shot. Uh, you see an overhead. Uh, you see the table uh, where she's sitting. So it doesn't just move away from the the computer it it moves back so you see the entire studio setup so it's it's kind of there are like three levels of uh of demonstrated reality and and i thought that was really just a, a a nice touch because because at first you don't really know how much she's going to show you or how she, how how the film was going to progress so I, as as a viewer i found it really interesting that she kept kind of moving the frame back
1: so Program 7 is the section that I've already said multiple times that I got to watch all of the films from. I thought it was a pretty interesting collection of movies and this sort of, like, their sort of thematic interest. Uh, Michael, did you have any one that you liked any more than the others?
2: Um, You know, I thought that uh, August 22nd this year and Humongous were pretty strong but I think that the one that kind of stood head and shoulders above everything else in this was uh, Sofia Bodanowitz's Point in Line mm-hmm. to Plane. Um, I've kind of uh, compared what Bodanowitz does to uh, Ricky D'Ambrose, uh, both in terms of um, having this sort of uh, intellectual collage kind of element that they're, the films are, are both um, about um, processing intellectual information with the viewer, um, but what Bodanowitz does is uh, she's made several films where she has this actress, uh, Dara Campbell, kind of play mm-hmm. um, a sort of version of the filmmaker. And so this this is really kind of a, an autobiographical film. But what she does with, with autobi- autobiography is really kind of interesting because whereas a lot of filmmakers would make this very uh, confessional or emotive. She... Uh, she kind of processes all of this um, personal information through uh, other people's art or through uh distant geography and these kinds of things to sort of distance herself from the um pr- from from the uh, personal facts of of her autobiography. so this is about two friends who died, but she is looking at those losses through their interest in uh, Kandinsky or. Uh, places that they said they were going to travel and and didn't and so um, I don't know I, I find uh, I generally like Bodanowitz's work and and this one point in line to plane I think is interesting just because uh, you don't typically see someone uh, engaged uh, making making an artwork that is really about mourning or loss but using that as a way to kind of meditate on say abstract art or right. uh, the history of uh, artists place within institutions or these things that are typically thought of as kind of dry or more a- academic uh, questions. I mean, she really kind of shows that these things are issues that can bring friends together and that people can actually care about and that these are ways that you can kind of channel genuine loss. So I, I, I just really like that film quite a lot.
1: Yeah. And there's mm-hmm. a particular way in that she ties both uses the it's sort of arts criticism its understanding of Kandinsky and these painters in these spaces to then reflect back on the sort of perception that they have over this grief how they use how they sort of use understand the form of abstract art to sort of reflect the ways in which they pr- are processing their grief in which they sort of understand these people that they have lost which is obviously a tough thing to do to try to pick out a mind of somebody who you no longer have access to but through sort of the sort of understanding of the things that they loved and were interested by can sort of gleam at what they were thinking and what they knew. Jesse what did you think?
0: Yeah I but uh, Badana is a Badana is a filmmaker who I have some familiarity with it as well. I know I I don't think I've seen any of her collaborations with Derek Campbell, though I am also familiar with Derek Campbell. She was in the Kazik Rizwansky, uh film uh, last year at Wavelengths and TIFF that Cinema Guild has uh, and she's really excellent in that and is quite good in this as well. I I guess this is the one that hasn't had mu- this program the the couple I've seen hasn't had much time to uh sink in for me cuz I was just watching it uh bits of it before we started recording. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think I I certainly agree with what both of you have said uh about this film.
1: Yep. And I also I quite enjoyed August 22 uh, this year, and I am sort of curious to talk about it. it. It's this sort of, like, it's I would say it's almost narrative. It's sort of this feature about people finding out that August 22nd is the day that the world is going to end, and then forms this sort of, like, collage of different people's reaction to it, and it's all sort of more serene that you would think about, and it, like, captures these people, like, either coming together or coming, going to a beach or like what they are sort of spending this time in like the sort of calm of knowing that the world is about to end. And what did you think about it, Michael?
2: Uh, yeah. I, mean, I, I thought, I thought it was quite. it kind of reminded me of a more tranquil version of uh, this, this uh, film from uh, the late fifties uh, by Christopher McLean called the end uh, where uh, it's, it's kind of like a sequence or anthology of different characters, uh, who are, uh, living the, the, the last few moments of their lives, but they don't know it. I mean, in this case, they, they know it. It's, it's a little bit like, um, uh, certain films like Abel Ferrara's 444 or, um, uh, uh the Canadian film Last Night. Um, actually it's a little bit, it's quite a bit like, uh, the, the movie, uh, Last Night where, um, mm-hmm. Everyone kind of knows that the world's going to end at a certain point, and people are either kind of off drinking or screwing or they're watching TV. Uh, David Cronenberg is in the film; he plays uh, uh, the chairman of uh, the natural gas company. He spends the last few hours calling customers, assuring them that their gas will be on and running until the very end of the of the world. But yeah, I mean, I think this is uh, it's a it's a nice premise, and I think that it's. Uh, it's really well executed. I mean, I I, I thought it was quite nice. Uh, this is one of the films, incidentally. Uh, you, you may be aware that uh, was um, selected to play the short films section at Cannes, and of course, yeah. did mm-hmm. did not. So um, it was nice to see.
1: Yeah, and also Humongous, which was the first short out of any of these that I watched, and was very taken to. Just like it's sort of poetic yet slightly comedic understanding of like the how you process something as a child and how that processing as a child like affects who you become as an adult and the sort of yeah I think all of these shorts I think in this section I sort of sort of like I found fascinating because they sort of present a fascination with the idea of how we perceive the world and how our cir- circumstances affect that sort of thing. And I think Humongous was certainly the most striking way of, of showing that sort of thought process.
2: Yeah, I liked Humongous as well. In fact, um, Humongous reminded me a little bit of uh, um, Lida uh, 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 Lerchandi's films. Uh, she had um, uh, the film Autofixion, in this year's festival and uh, they both share this kind of uh, fragmented look at uh, the subjectivity of young women I mean, they, they seem as though they're going to become narrative in some sense but they're really more just these kind of short semi-comedic vignettes of relating to other bodies in space, relating to abstract spaces um, relating to inside versus outside and they're really almost these sort of i mean they're, they're not really tati because they're really more like outdoor and natural light and things like this but they do have this sense of um the individual as a kind of figure among other figures and just kind of trying to figure out where where their body belongs and things like that and uh and so yeah i, I quite like humongous um
1: in, in yeah. that respect yeah humongous is by aya kawazoe uh, I read a brief interview with her about the short because I sort of wanted to get a deeper understanding of it. And she described it as sort of sort of trying to process this feeling that she felt as a child that she saw a sort of beach swale. And then just like she, her, she's trying to process her feeling of just like feeling so small as a person next to something that big. And, and trying to understand your space, as you mentioned, like your space within the world when things that much bigger than you exist and that's sort of reflected in a moment towards the beginning of the short where these kids are being swung around in a swing set and then one of them mentions seeing a giant fish and then it sort of cuts jesse mm-hmm. and jesse i know you also saw humongous did you have any thoughts
0: oh uh <laughs> Not really again i I saw this program right before right before we started recording, and have not had the thoughts of not had much time to percolate,
1: yeah, so I think those are the ones I'm the most interesting. I think the end of suffering a proposal is sort of a fun like sort of lark of a short of just a uh, woman in conversation with. A planet and trying to process, trying to change her like processing of a form of grief to try and like. I I don't you you never really see what she's sort of grieving or sad over, but it's sort it's sort of like her having this weird conversation with the stars about how her processing of uh, her understanding of like the planet Mars and how she has a very earthly understanding of of trying to put logic and narrative into things that happen to you and you have to sort of let go of these things to, to be more like Mars, which is a planet of love where you are, you sort of are more at peace. Yeah.
2: Yeah. No, I, I I thought that one was um, clever. Um it was that was one of the first ones I saw, and I, I remember thinking, "This is this is a little more narrative than I expected it to be." But then, I, as I got in, I thought, "Okay, so all of these films are going to be kind of mixed in uh, this year's festival, and so um, mm-hmm. that that one seemed a little bit uh, off the track." But um, but no, I, it was it was nice.
1: Yeah, the only other movie that's left in that section is *The Unseen River*, which is a Vietnamese short film that I was sort of left a little cold by and a little puzzled by. I don't know how you felt, felt about it. Yeah,
2: same here. I mean, I... Uh, uh, ha- Filmmaker has a good eye, but I, I didn't really feel like it um, It was really distinguished.
1: Yeah. So I think okay. that wraps up our coverage of the of the shorts. Anything you want to say, Jesse? Uh,
0: yeah, no. I mean, uh... Uh, well, first, uh, Michael, is there anything that you'd like to plug or promote?
2: Um, no, no. I just, uh, this has been fun. I really appreciate uh, you uh, inviting me on here. And, um, yeah, this is uh, this has been informative, and uh, I just really appreciate it. Yeah,
1: great. I'll, I'll, I'll also say quickly that uh, before Michael got on, I was reading his dispatches that he wrote for Mubi about the New York Film Festival, and they are quite well-written and interesting, so you should check those out.
0: Oh, well, thank you very much. All right. Well, yeah, uh, I mean, keep looking out for our uh, coverage of the festival. We're going to have one last uh, episode on kind of the main slate coming out probably on Monday. And then a little later in the week, we're going to go back to Currents and we're going to discuss the features from the section with Jordan Cronk. So look forward to that. And uh, yeah, you can find us on Twitter at Can I Kick It, spelled the way that it's spelled in your podcast app. You can find us on Letterboxd at C-I-K-I-Pod. You can find me on either of those platforms at J.P. Glick Weber, Weber with two B's, uh, Emilio. Uh,
1: yeah, you can find me on uh, Twitter at I'm Left Alone, and you can follow me on Letterboxd at I Laugh Alone. Our uh, our theme song is by Tree Related. You can find them at SoundCloud.com/tree-related or search Tree Related on Spotify. Thank you, Michael, for being on, and that's all I have to say.
0: All right, then, great. I will go ahead then and release our audience. Bye-bye. Bye bye.
1: Bye.